can open to the book of Romans, chapter 14. Uh, If you are visiting with us, we've been working our way through the book of Romans over uh, several Sundays now. In fact, we're getting near the end of our study. This is sermon 41 of 44 that's taking us through the book. And really, uh, our text this morning is very much linked to what we looked at last week, Romans 14, 13 through 23 is our text this morning, the last half of Romans 14. The first half of the text is, is very much on the same theme, so just going to continue what we looked at last week. And yet, I, uh, I, I do believe that even if you are here or may not be familiar with the first half of Romans 14, this is of immense uh, benefit for us this morning to look at this text. Romans 14, verse 13 is where our text begins, and that's found if you picked up one of the Red Bibles on page 949, 949. Don't ask one more time if you're able, if you would mind standing so that we might once more honor God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 13, going through the end of the chapter, hear the reading of God's word. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, would you aid me now? Would you allow the words of my mouth to be pleasing in your sight? Would you bring to mind everything that you want me to say? Allow me to communicate clearly. Allow me merely to hold up and speak your words after you to your people, and then use them powerfully. May it be a demonstration of the Spirit of God working in power so that you would plant seeds in our heart that would bear fruit of obedience in our lives. I pray for us as a whole, as your word is preached, help us to have ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to rejoice in and love and obey your word. Use the preaching of your word now, I pray, to lead us to walk in even greater unity as a congregation, even as this text aims at. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. There was a time uh, a while back uh, all of us pastors were at a conference, 
And in the conference, we were listening to one specific speaker talk about the mission of the church. And it was just an excellent uh, lecture he was giving. He was holding up just biblically informed, Christ-honoring, just mission of the church directed. Everything was, was good and, and edifying about it. So many good truths that came out of that. But I thought of that lecture this week as I was studying the text, not because of the main point he was making, but really because of some, a bit of a throwaway comment almost he made. In the midst of talking about keeping the church focused on the mission that Christ has given us, which is found at the end of Matthew, right, the Great Commission, that's the mission of the church. In talking about keeping the church focused on that, he said this line, almost a throwaway, he said, because you all know it's only when you get almost sick of saying something that people are beginning to hear it for the first time. And I thought of that this week as I was looking at this text, because in the latter half of Romans 14, I had done my study and outlining of the text. I put it all together, and I thought, let me, let me think of one, one phrase. How, how could I get this together in a sentence? What, what is Paul saying? And as I thought about it, I, I just came up with this truth. I thought, yeah, I think this is a good summary of, of what Paul's saying in the latter half of Romans 14. And the statement that came to mind was something like this. It's not enough for us as believers to ask, what are our liberties? What are our freedoms? Now, again, we're not talking about the areas of sin. Things are clearly laid out as sin and not sin in the Bible. I'm talking about in areas of freedom where we have. And the statement that came to mind was, it's not enough for believers simply to ask, how can I exercise my liberties or what liberties do I have in my life? The question that we need to ask moving beyond our liberties is, how can I live in a way that is most loving toward my brothers and sisters in Christ? And as I thought about that, kind of having wrestled with a number of different statements to try to sum up this text, I thought to myself, yeah, that's it. You know, almost like a well done, Lee, kind of moment, you know, in my life. And uh, as soon as I did, though, it hit me, well done, Lee, what are you talking about? This is the point Paul has been making chapter after chapter after chapter since he started chapter 12. Though he's inspired by the Spirit so that everything Paul writes is the very words of God, I wonder if as the Spirit inspired him to write this again, he thought, I feel like I'm writing the same thing over and over again. Hopefully it's so that some pastor in Jackson and see can start to get it for the first time, you know? And, uh, and so isn't this true? Paul begins Romans 12. Romans 12 is Paul's way now after... a Generally speaking, after the first 11 chapters of just laying out these theological truths, Romans 12 begins to shift toward practical Christian living. What does this look like? And after giving us a summary statement in verses 1 and 2, and then the context for which the Christian life is lived out as you walk together as a local church in this world, the first place then he starts in chapter 12, verse 9, is with these words, let love be genuine. Or the very next verse, verse 10 of chapter 12, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Or even if you skip down to chapter 13, verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And when we get to chapter 15, we're going to see that what Paul upholds is the example of Christ who gave himself, who sacrificed himself for the good, seeking the good of others. Consequently then, we should not be shocked 
that when Paul takes up these areas of freedom in Romans chapter 14, specifically we saw uh, last week he took up this issue of um, re- thinking of all days alike, that is, they've, they've come to the time now where they don't have to celebrate festival, feast days, Sabbaths, and so some of the Jews were struggling with moving away from that. The Jewish Christians were struggling to move away from that. Others knew they had the freedom to esteem all days alike. In areas of diet, some of the Jewish Christians struggled with the idea of being able to walk away from the Mosaic food laws, knowing now they were free to eat meat or drink wine, as, as he's going to mention uh, in verse 21 of our text this morning, and others felt absolute freedom to do those things. And so Paul then talks about what it looks like as a congregation as a local church, who in these areas of freedom find themselves maybe differing in matters of conviction. And, and Paul, last week we saw, exhorted us to say, listen, you who know that you have freedom to esteem all days alike, you who know you have freedom, freedom to eat and drink what you want, I want to make sure that you're not despising and ridiculing and looking down on your brothers who do not have the faith to realize they have that freedom. And to the weak brothers, to those who, 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 who do not feel that they have the freedom to do what they really do have the freedom to do, who do not feel like they have the freedom to think of all days alike or to eat or drink whatever they want, he says, I want you to make sure that you're not passing judgment on those who are walking in this freedom. They do have this faith. You who are weak in faith do not pass judgment. And so what Paul then does in our text this morning is says, but it's not enough. It's not enough merely to say to those who have the strong faith to walk in these freedoms, don't despise your brothers. And to those who are weak in faith and don't have the faith to walk in those ways, do not um, judge your brothers. It's not enough to simply say that. I also want you to see that every thought you have about living out your freedoms as a Christian needs to pass through the grid of what is most loving for my brother, what is most loving toward my sister. That's how we live our life. And that's what we're going to see this morning in Romans 14, 13 through 23. Now, Paul starts out with an exhortation, but in order for that exhortation to make sense, I'm just going to tell you how this worked in my own mind. In order for the exhortation of verse 13 to make sense, and that exhortation is this, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. In order for that exhortation not to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother, in order for that to make sense, I think you and I need to understand a premise that Paul's working on that he makes clear at other places in the text. So I'm going to start with that premise, then I'm going to give you my main exhortation with some some points under it, and then one final point. So let me start sermon point number one with just a premise this morning, and it's this. If you think something is sinful and you do it, you're sinning. If you think something is sinful, now I could add here, even if it's not objectively sinful, but you think it's sinful and you do it, you are sinning in that moment. Now, I'm going to show you that at two places in the text, but let me first illustrate what I mean, because I think this will make complete sense to you. Even if that statement feels odd right now, really? If something's not objectively sinful, but I just think it's sinful and I do it, I'm sinning? Let me, let me lay this out to you. I'm going to use the illustration that I used last week. So if you're here last week, you heard this, here it is again. Um, maybe you'll feel like you're hearing it only for the first time. Um, think of a toddler. Now, it's easy to use children, not because children display folly more than us. They just don't have the social maturity to hide it as well as we do. So uh, think of a toddler. 
right? And so you have a mom, and she's in her home. And what she's done is she's gone into the living room that is connected to the kitchen, and she's begun sweeping the floor. And so she has a couple piles of dust that she's going to get to and sweep them up into the dustpan. But before she does, she's doing something in the kitchen. And the toddler is with her in the kitchen. And so in this moment where the dust piles aren't swept up, and she doesn't want the toddler running through those dust piles, and before she gets to them, she turns to her toddler and says to him, hey, I don't want you to go into the living room right now. And the toddler, like the law working on an unregenerate heart, hears that command, and what it arouses within his heart is rebellion. And so what he does is he looks at his mom in a very defiant way, and takes off running for the living room, and runs the living room. We all know that's clearly sinning, disobeying his parents, right? Now, let's fast forward, though, and let's say we're now to the next day. The next day, there are no dust piles in the living room. There's no prohibition for that child that, that he can't go into the living room, but the problem is he doesn't know that. And so, once more, mom's cooking dinner in the kitchen, toddler standing there, And in this moment of defiant rebellion, he again looks up at his mom and defiantly turns and runs for the living room. Now, what's going on in that child's heart? Well, we could say, objectively, is he disobeying his mom to run into the living room? Well, no, there's nothing wrong with it. That that was a prohibition that was in place for one day. It was special circumstances. There were some dust piles in the living room. That's why he couldn't go. Today, he's free to go if he wants to, but here's the problem. He doesn't know that. He thinks that what he's doing is rebelling against his mom, and so consequently, what he's doing is sinful because that's the desire of his heart, and that's why the mom would be right to to go and, and discipline them these ways. Well, what Paul is going to show us in this text is that illustration of what's going on in the heart of a toddler who thinks what he's doing is sinful and therefore does it. He is sinning. That same thing is true in the Christian life. If you and I do something that, that we think is sinful, we are sinning. Now, let me show you this. This comes two places in the text very clearly. The first one is in verse 14. In verse 14, Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Now, here's what Paul's referring to. In the Old Testament, in the law of Moses, God had labeled certain foods clean and certain foods unclean. And those foods that he had labeled clean, you were fine to eat eat all of it you want. But those foods that he had labeled unclean, like in the Old Testament, pork, for example, it was labeled unclean. You were not allowed to eat it. It was off limits. But here's what happened. The Mosaic law functioned in a way, Paul will say of it in Colossians 2, that it was like a shadow leading to the substance that is found in Christ. In other words, the example I've used is the Old Testament, the Mosaic law and those prohibitions like not eating these kinds of foods were like training wheels that are put on a bicycle. In other words, they were helpful and right, but they were not made to be there permanently. And so what happened is when God the Son took on flesh and began to walk the earth, Mark records very clearly at a specific point in Jesus' ministry, he made clear that those food laws of clean and unclean are no longer binding. 
In Mark chapter 7, verses 18 to 19, let me just read it to you. Jesus, in a conversation with some who are challenging about what foods one can eat and cannot eat, Jesus says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And Mark adds this, thus he declared all foods clean. So from the point of Mark 7, 19, there's no more category of clean and unclean. All foods are clean. All foods can be eaten. But here's the problem. In the church of Rome, you had some of these Christians who had, who had been raised as Jews and been under these food laws, and they were just having a hard time having the faith to believe they really were free to eat pork. You can imagine this, right? I'm going to imagine your whole life you were raised being told bacon is off limits. Pork chops are evil. And you live your life, you know, 20, 30 years knowing pork bad. And all of a sudden somebody goes, you know what? You can now eat pork and it's honoring to God. And some of these Jewish Christians then were having a problem. They, they, they were weak. This is the category Paul uses, weak and strong. They were weak in having the faith to believe they really were free to eat pork. They really were free to eat meat and wine, eat meat and drink wine as the example Paul uses here. They really were free to go out on a Saturday and pick up sticks if they wanted. And so they were struggling in this way. And so Paul makes clear in verse 14, he says, look, I know and I'm persuaded. I know what Jesus says. There is nothing unclean in of itself. There's no food that's off limits. But, he says, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. That is to say, if that Jewish Christian looks at that bacon and says, I just feel like it would be sin to eat bacon, but then he eats it, he is sinning. Let me show this to you one other time in our text. Paul makes this clear again. Verse 23. He's going to say in verse 22, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. What Paul's saying in verse 22 is this, to the individual that looks at bacon and says, I absolutely know I have freedom to eat this bacon and it's not sinful at all, praise God, and picks up the bacon and eats it, Paul says that man is blessed. And we would say amen to that, right? <laughs> but verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So, of course, if an individual cannot look and say, I'm going to do this knowing it honors the Lord, but has doubts in his heart, this may be sinful. Well, then if he were to eat thinking what he's doing may be sinful, he's just like that toddler running from the kitchen into the living room when it's perfectly okay, but in his heart he thinks I may be rebelling against my mom. Well, that's what Paul says of the Christian. And so this is the basic premise that, that, that's going to help make this text for us. And Paul's exhortation makes sense. If you and I think that something is sinful, even if it objectively is sinful, you better not do it. Because if you do it and you harden your conscience and harden your heart, what you're doing is sinning just like that toddler running into the living room. This would apply, obviously, to these Jewish Christians um, who are struggling about issues of food and drink and certain days, but it applies across the board. Let me just, I mean, I can just say this very generally. If there's anything in your life right now 
that you're doing, but you're thinking to yourself, I'm not sure if it's okay if I do this, then you need to stop doing it. Even if you're halfway sure, I don't know, I'm just not sure. It feels like this may be sin. Then, then do not do uh, this action that you may think is sinful because you cannot do it in faith, right? That's Paul's first premise. Okay, here's his main exhortation then. It's this, point number two. We should never tempt others to do what they think is sinful. You and I, we should never tempt others to do what they think is sinful. Now, Paul's going to use different words along the way, like grieve your brother or put a stumbling block in front of your brother or cause your brother to stumble. That's the kind of language he's going to use. But the basic idea that Paul's driving at is this truth. What he's saying is that you and I should never tempt our brothers and sisters to do what they think is sinful. We should never tempt them to imitate our behavior, Paul's going to say. Don't tempt them to imitate our behavior when they think that our behavior is sinful. Again, the example, don't tempt your brother to eat bacon, even though you know you're free to eat bacon. If he thinks eating bacon is sinful, that's not being loving. Paul um, makes this point again in multiple places in our text. Verse 13, here's his main exhortation. Therefore, do not pass judgment on on one another any longer. That's his connection from the last text. That's what he's been talking about in the last text. But now he says there's something else I want to add. But rather, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I'm never going to cause my brother to stumble, Paul says. That's what I want you to determine in your mind. And, And as you can see in this text, What he has in mind is, I'm never going to tempt him to violate his conscience. I'm never going to tempt him to imitate my behavior and in doing so violate his own conscience. He makes the same exhortation in verses 20 and 21. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. He's making the point again, look, it's clean. You can eat anything. But it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. This is Paul's point. If by eating meat or drinking wine you entice your brother through that pressure of him witnessing your freedom to do what actually is a violation of his own conscience, you're causing your brother to stumble. And Paul gives us, I'm going to make these subpoints. Paul gives us four reasons why we need to obey that exhortation never to tempt others to do what they think is sinful. A, if you tempt your brother to do what he believes is sinful, you could do damage to his soul. If you tempt your brother to do what he believes is sinful, you could do damage to his soul. Now, let's see this in the text. Verse 13, there's the exhortation. Decide not to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of your brother. Why? Verse 14, because I know and am persuaded that nothing's unclean, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So don't put a stumbling block because if he does what his conscience tells him is sinful, it would be sinful for him. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love, but by what you eat, do not destroy one for whom Christ died. Now, first of all, let's, let's just take the language a little bit. What does Paul mean in verse 15 when he says, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat? Well, commentators across the board seem to agree that, that what Paul's talking about here is not just your brother sees you eating meat or drinking wine or whatever, as he's going to use the examples in this text, and it just makes him feel sad. That's not what he's talking about. 
by grieving your brother, the idea, commentators suggest, and I think that's right, it makes sense of this text, that what's going on here is here's what Paul's picturing. Paul's picturing a scene where, again, we'll just keep using the example of bacon because it's uh, an easy one, and um, there's near unanimous support for the love of bacon, isn't there? Um, so we can uh, picture then you're, you're eating bacon in front of your brother. Your brother believes that eating pork is sinful, but by seeing you eating the bacon, he's enticed to do it, and he does then eat the bacon. But immediately as he eats the bacon, doing something that he has freedom to do, his conscience is violated, and immediately he's grieved in his soul that what he's done is rebel against the Lord. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, Paul says you're not walking in love. You've eaten, enticed him to follow you, and now he is grieved in this. But then notice the language intensifies, that second sentence of verse 15. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. What does Paul mean there by destroy? Well, when Paul uses this language of destroy in his letters, he's talking about the idea of damnation. He's talking the idea of of, of suffering the judgment of God. Well, but but we know that, that, that if an individual is really a believer, according to Romans 8, 29 to 30, right? If he's been predestined, called, justified, he will be glorified, right? All those who are justified are going to be glorified. Yes, But Paul has a category for just taking a believer at his profession of faith. If you profess faith, he's going to call you a brother. He's going to assume you're a brother. But he also then has a category for you who profess faith to go on through a life of sin and lack of repentance to show yourself not to belong to Christ. This is the same category John brings up, right? 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made evident they were never of us. And so Paul then in this text will talk about this individual who professes faith, your brother, he's giving them the full benefit of the doubt, he's your brother. But he is saying this, listen, if you eat and entice him to follow you and grieve his heart, leading him to sin by violating his conscience and what he eats, you could destroy your brother, you could lead him to damnation. The, the path might go something like this. The way sin works is that when you sin in one way, it doesn't work that it's easy just to stop right there. Here's the way sin works. If you sin and you don't deal with that sin, you don't stop and acknowledge that sin, confess that sin, repent of it, get, move away from that sin, what can happen is you not only sin, but you can begin to harden your heart a little bit. So the next time you come back to that, it's a little easier to sin. Your heart's not as sensitive to that sin. And so one sin leads to more sin, leads to more sin, leads to more sin, ultimately leads to a lifestyle where you have no desire to repent. You and I have seen individuals who were professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and started down that path. And now we say of them, they give no evidence that they really belong to Christ because their hearts are hardened by sin. Paul says, listen, the same thing could happen in your brother's life. If you tempt your brother to do what he believes is sinful, you could do damage to his soul, harden his heart so that ultimately he goes down this path of ultimately living a life that denies the Lord Jesus Christ by his lack of repentance. Reason number two, B, for why we should not tempt others to do what they think is sinful. Two, your flaunting of your freedom could result in something good being reviled. Your flaunting of your freedom could result in something that is good being reviled. Look what Paul says in the next verse, verse 15, 16 rather. So do not let what you regard as good 
be spoken of as evil. What's Paul mean there? What's his concern? Don't let something that is good be spoken of as evil. Here's, I think, what he's getting at. Let's just take the scenario we've been working with. This Jewish Christian in the church at Rome who thinks that eating pork is wrong, and this Gentile Christian then decides that he's going to have him over one day for breakfast. And he pulls out a big pan of bacon, and he says to his Jewish Christian brother, hey, I made bacon for us this morning. And the Jewish Christian brother goes, ah, I think that eating bacon is sinful. And the Gentile Christian says, really? I mean, you don't understand. Jesus declared all foods clean. And he goes, ah, I just, I struggle. I still feel like it's sinful. And he goes, all right, fine, more for me, you know? And so that Gentile Christian just begins chowing down on the bacon, and he's, you know, making it such that he's like, man, this is so good and tasty, and it's hard to imagine a food better than bacon. And, and he's, he's doing this to such an extent of flaunting this freedom he has in eating bacon to the extent that the Jewish Christian ultimately breaks and goes, I'll tell you what, fine, just give me the bacon. I've got to be a part of this. And then he eats it, believing that what he's doing is rebelling against God, but he's doing it anyway. He's sinning, right, according to this text. And then this ultimately leads then to a path of him repeating that motion, which again is not far-fetched. It may feel like that's a silly illustration, bacon leading to more sin, but, but this is not a far-fetched for sin, right? You guys know, just take any sin. I, I pray that, 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 that we have avoided and are avoiding and running away from looking at, at lustful images on our phone or TV or computer. But you and I both know, if you go down that path, and begin to expose yourself to those things, and do not deal with it, and turn from it, your heart is hardened, it's easy to come back to it again. Think of a dating relationship. I pray every one of us in our dating relationships are avoiding every hint of sexual morality. But you can testify, and if you can't, others can. When you walk in sin in your physical relationship with somebody you're dating, how much easier is it to come right back and repeat that sin again? And come right back to it. What's that proving? What it's proving is you're hardening your heart. And sin is becoming easier to do. Right? So in this bacon illustration, he eats, he hardens his heart, he does what he thinks is sinful, and that leads to a life where he's feeling easier and easier and easier it is to sin. And ultimately then, one day, a bunch of people are standing around, Jewish Christians with him, and they're going, good grief, man, you've just lost your way. Where did this all start? And he said, it started when I saw Joe, the Gentile Christian, eating bacon, and he was enticing me to eat bacon with him. And you know what they're going to say? This is why eating bacon is so terrible. That's not really the problem. You know what's going on there? Paul says in verse 16, you're actually having something that is good, you've now allowed it to be spoken of as evil. Eating bacon is good. You're allowing it to be spoken of as evil. Why? How? Because you used it in a way to lead your brother towards sin. And it's a big deal in Paul's life that good things are spoken of as good and that evil things are spoken of as evil. Paul is bothered by licentious living. He is bothered by individuals who say, I know this is clearly sin, I don't care, I'm going to do it. That bothers Paul. It also bothers Paul when good things are spoken of as if they're evil. Think about Peter with the Galatian believers. It was good and right for Peter to sit at the table and eat with them when they ate whatever they wanted. But as soon as these Jewish individuals walked in the door and Peter got up and left the table and walked over, what he was allowing was something he was doing that is good, sitting and eating with Gentile believers, whatever they eat. We have unity around food, right? He was allowing that to be spoken of as evil, and Paul confronted him to his face. 
Why? Because Paul knows that just as licentious living can destroy the church, so legalism can divide the church as well. And Paul does not want this category of allowing those things which are good to be spoken of as evil. Reason number three why you should not tempt your brother to do what he thinks is sinful. Three, C, whatever it is. You don't have to exercise your freedoms to honor the Lord, but you do have to pursue righteousness, peace, and joy. C, you don't have to exercise your freedoms to honor the Lord, but you do have to pursue righteousness, peace, and joy. This is what Paul says in verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying to these individuals for whom some in the church eat meat and drink wine and others think that eating wine and drinking... uh, eating wine, eating meat and drinking wine is sinful. He's saying to them, listen, when you're with them, you can give up eating meat and you can give up drinking wine. But but why, Paul? Because, listen, you don't have to exercise your freedom of eating and drinking to honor Christ, to reflect that He's your King, to show forth His kingdom in this world and to show that you're walking under the rule of Christ. Obeying Christ does not require that you eat meat and drink wine. Obeying Christ does require that you pursue righteousness and peace and joy. That's what Paul's saying there in verse 17. So he's saying, listen, you can give up these rights. You can give up these liberties. You can give up these freedoms when you're with your weaker brothers because eating and drinking is not required as a believer. Eating and drinking particular things when you want, however you want. But living a life of righteousness and peace and joy is. And then finally, D. If you pursue what is best for your brother, you'll honor God and edify others. If you pursue what is best for your brother, you'll honor God and edify others. So, so on the one hand, we might say point C was a bit of a negative. You don't have to eat to, to honor the Lord as your king and to demonstrate Christ's kingdom. You do have to pursue these other things. But now he's speaking it positively. And if you pursue righteousness and peace and joy... God is going to be honored, Christ is going to be honored, and your brother is going to be edified. That's what he says in verses 18 and 19. Whoever thus serves Christ, and in this context, I think he means willingly lays down his right for the sake of allowing his brother to walk and not be tempted to sin, not to stumble. Whoever serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. In other words, what Paul says is this. If you're with your brother in that same circumstance, and you have your pan full of bacon, and you bring it out, and your Jewish Christian brother says, you know what? I know what Jesus says in Mark 7 about all foods being clean, but I I tell you, my conscience is just pricked by eating pork. It's the ways I was raised my whole life. I just don't think I need to do it. And um, man, I tell you what, when you're eating pork right now, though, it it really makes me want to do it. And you say, oh, man, good grief. I tell you what, here's what I want to do. You mean a lot more to me than eating bacon right now. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this bacon and throw it in the trash, or maybe as a better steward, wrap it up and put it in the fridge for later, right, whatever. Um, But I tell you what, man, this morning, I'm not going to eat bacon around you. And you know why I'm not? Because, man, I love you. I don't want to tempt you to do anything. By watching me eat bacon, if that's going to tempt you to sin, that's the last thing I want. You mean so much more. I would give up bacon my whole life 
for the sake of your soul if that was what was required, right? Paul says when you respond that way, pursuing righteousness and peace and joy and not making it as if the kingdom, the primary thing of the kingdom is eating and drinking. No, I can put those things away. The primary thing of the kingdom is living in righteousness and peace and joy with my other brothers and sisters. He said, here's what's going on. Verse um, uh, 18, whoever serves Christ in that way, God is, he's accepted by God. God says, that is good, and he's approved of by men. This is the other thing that's going to happen. Not only is God your Father and Christ your Savior looking at you and going, that is so good that you're doing that, but also, you know what's going to happen? Your brother in Christ is going to find himself in another context, and he's going to go, guys, let me tell you what happened earlier today. I was at Joe's house, and he was serving um, breakfast, and you know, I know, Joe just, he knows, that he celebrates that freedom of eating bacon, I struggle with it, but here's what he did, he put it away from me, because he loves me more than he loves bacon, he loves me more than tempting me to sin and violate my conscience, but you know what others are going to be able to say, they're going to go, man, I, I, I hope that I can live my life in the same way Joe is, right, now all of a sudden, Joe's being approved of by men. That's what he says in verse 18. Acceptable to God and approved by men. And so Paul then says in verse 19, let's pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding, not tempting our brothers to sin. And so Paul's premise, if you do what you think is sinful, it is sinful, even if it's not objectively sinful. Therefore, the exhortation, don't tempt your brother to sin. Why? We've seen the reasons. If you tempt your brother, you could do damage to his soul. Flaunting your freedom may result in something that is good, actually being reviled by others. You don't have to exercise your freedom, son of the Lord. You do have to pursue righteousness, peace, and joy. And then finally, if you pursue what's best for your brother, you'll honor God and edify others. But there is one final thing I want to say from this text because it's where Paul goes in the last few verses, and it's this. You can still enjoy these freedoms privately or with other strong believers. You can still enjoy these freedoms privately or with other strong believers. Now, this is an interesting category for Paul. We might not think of Paul going this, we might think that Paul is just going to go the route of, so yeah, in this first century church, if your brother is offended by you eating meat and drinking wine, just, just never do it ever. Say goodbye to eat and say goodbye to wine. And, and Paul is of such a, a conviction, and we should be as well, to say, you know what, if that's what it required, I would go without meat and wine, they should be saying, right? We could go without bacon, whatever it is. We could do that because we love our brothers enough. But it's interesting, in these last few verses, Paul does introduce this other category, because he knows, and he's made it very clear, there's no category for unclean. It's, it's, it's a bummer that your brother thinks it's sinful to eat bacon because you guys should not be eating bacon together than if he's tempted to do that. But Paul then opens this category not for saying, therefore, let's throw all the bacon away in the world and never go get the bacon ever again. Listen to what he says in these last few verses. Verses 20 through 23. So he restates his thing here, right? Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. That is, bring your brother to sin. Everything's indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. We've already said that. Verse 21, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Again, we've already seen that. That's what we've been looking at the whole time. But then, here's what he says in verse 22. The faith that you have, by that he means the faith, your, your, your understanding that you have freedom to eat bacon or eat meat and drink wine, and, and that is the case that he used in verse 21. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. 
Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Now, if you go back to the first century, and an individual was saying to Paul, so Paul, you and I both know there's nothing wrong with eating bacon. There's no unclean anymore. It's just clean. And, and I do like bacon. And Paul, I'm with you. Amen. If my brother is, is with me, and he has a conscience issue, and he's tempted to eat meat, to eat the bacon because I'm eating the bacon, I by no means want to eat it in front of him. But, 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 but Paul, is, isn't there a, isn't okay? It, it is, you've made it clear it's okay to eat bacon. Is, is, is it okay for me to think of eating bacon as a good thing, actually? Paul says, yes. In fact, you're blessed if you can eat and not feel condemned about eating bacon. Uh, verse 23, the one who doubts is condemned if he eats. I, I really do. This is, this is not Paul making light of food. He's saying it is a blessing if your heart has come to the realization to accept Jesus' clear teaching and to be able to eat whatever you want. Verse 22, you're blessed if you have no reason to pass judgment on yourself for your proof. But he's saying this, so here's what I want you to do. I'm not saying to you get rid of all the bacon. What I'm saying to you is eat bacon in the privacy of your own home. Or when you're with other strong believers for whom it's not tempting them to sin, they enjoy bacon as well, then eat bacon with them. Or as the, the text mentions here in verse 21 specifically, as they were dealing with eat meat and drink wine. But the same is true uh, in all of these areas. Paul is not in this text saying, I'm trying to take away all of your freedoms. He's actually celebrated these freedoms earlier and said to the weaker brother, don't pass judgment on your brother. If your brother eats bacon and you think it's wrong to eat bacon, quit judging him. Stop it, Paul says. But then to the strong brother, he's saying, deal with him gently. Don't tempt him to sin. Yes, eat bacon by yourself with other strong believers, whatever, but be willing to give up these things for the good of your brother. And brothers and sisters, we could just expand this all over the place, right? I've, I've stayed with food because that's the one Paul mentions here in verse 21. He brings up meat or drink wine, but then he does say right after that, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And so last week, I started by asking this question, how do we walk in unity when on matters in areas of freedom, you and I may have differing convictions? And part of the answer last week was, if you're in the position of strong, realizing you have these freedoms, don't ridicule. If you're in the position of weak, not feeling like you have these freedoms, don't judge. But another part of it is, always ask yourself when you're exercising freedoms in the Christian life, is what I'm doing now in any way going to tempt my brother to sin? Because if it does, I'm going to set it aside because I love my brother much more than I do whatever fill in the blank in practicing whatever freedom I have. And if you think, yeah, but that feels like a lot to give up, then simply think of Jesus. God the Son took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross to pay for our sins. In the garden, he says, I'm sorrowful to the point of death. I think meaning my sorrow is so deep, I feel like it's going to kill me. And then he goes to the cross, suffers the wrath, the divine wrath that you and I deserve, and is raised from the dead on the third day so that you and I might have life. Brothers and sisters, this is why I wanted to start the service the way I did. If Christ has so sacrificed and loved us, how can we not be of the position to say, 
I would be willing to lay down any freedom I have if only it meant my brother was built up and edified. And so this morning, what we're going to do, we do this every Sunday. We, we take a moment of silence after the preaching of the word. And in that moment of silence, it just gives us an opportunity to reflect on this. Maybe you've, you've looked and you've said, you know what? I've been more insistent that I flaunt my freedoms than that I love my brother, and I want to stop that. I want to repent of that. Maybe this morning there's been an area where, where you've realized you, you do have freedom where you didn't think you did or something like this. But, but whatever it is, we're going to take that moment of silence and use that time if you want. Just maybe you want to pray. Just think about responding to this text. And then we're going to distribute the bread and the cup. Interestingly, we're going to finish this service with a meal. Eating of the bread and drinking of the cup. And it's a way for us to proclaim our unity. It's a way for us to say, despite all secondary differences, we love one another and gather around this table because Christ loved us and gave his body and shed his blood for us. So, if you're not a believer this morning, when this bread and this cup passes by, just let them go by. Because by eating this bread and drinking this cup, what we're saying is, my faith is in the one who laid down his life for me, who gave his body and shed his blood. If you're not a believer this morning, I want to ask you just to let these elements pass by, but I want to ask you to do something else. In fact, I want to plead with you to do something else. This morning, if you're not a believer, please, this morning, place your faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. Right now, the Bible says that you and I are sinful and God's wrath is hanging over us so that on the day of judgment, we'll actually suffer his wrath. The picture the Bible uses is of the lamb throwing us into the the lake of fire if we do not have faith in Christ. I want to plead with you, why would you die in your sins? when this morning you can place your faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to talk to me more about that after the service, I would love to talk to you. And then I want to encourage you, if indeed you place your faith in Christ, to make that public by being baptized, which is the prescribed means that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us for professing our faith. If you're a believer, you've professed faith in baptism, you're a member in good standing of an evangelical gospel-preaching church, after this moment of silence, I want to invite you to take the bread and take the cup. And then we're going to eat of it together. And we're going to drink of it together. And as we disperse these elements, we're going to remember ourselves before God, before Christ, as we'll sing together, I boast no more, putting ourselves in a place of remembering Christ's love for us, though undeserving, so that we might be moved then to love others as well. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come.